On uh, September 7, just a couple months ago, happened to be a time when the elections, you guys hear there was an election recently somewhere? Uh, it was just getting ramped up, especially this extra high-level intensity back in September, September 7, and I was uh, clicking through Facebook as I do now and then, and I noticed the following post from a member of my family. It went like this. I will not be using Facebook anymore until after the elections are over. I don't mind hearing about someone's party persuasion. I just can't stomach the forceful diatribes, the sarcasm and ridicule of the opposing party, and mean-spirited put-downs of others' beliefs. I have enjoyed Facebook as a social gathering place and a way to connect with friends who would not otherwise be accessible to chat with. This uh, member of my family is 60 years old, so it's, it's universal. Uh, he ends with, goodbye for now, with a smiley face. I thought to myself, huh, that's actually not a bad idea. A, a bit dramatic, perhaps, uh, but, but really not a bad idea. Uh, can you relate to the sentiment that he was expressing? Like, I got to get out of this because things can just get nasty here on Facebook and during this time. But then, five days later, I was surprised to see another post from this same family member who had just sworn off Facebook for the next few months. Essentially, it said something to the effect of, uh, my bad, uh, I can't stay away from Facebook because I realize that Facebook is the way I stay connected to my family and friends. So I'm back. And I thought, welcome back. Uh, dramatic in both senses, but uh, we can relate to that too, right? Is he right? Uh, for many of us in this room and for many people across the world, social media has been an incredible thing. Facebook and, and Twitter and all these different ways, blogs and email, if you use that still, and all that kind of stuff have become this sort of mixed blessing, right? On the one hand, we're able to connect instantly with family and friends that we would never be able to uh, across the city, across the country, across the world. It's quite incredible what Facebook and these other things do for us in that way. And on the other hand, doesn't it seem like there is something about online communication that makes it a little different than face-to-face, -face, and you're a little more willing to say things online that you wouldn't dare say to someone face-to-face? -face. Yeah. It's crazy what we'll say online and type and send like, yeah, and that we would never say because we wouldn't have the guts for one thing, but we just wouldn't also dare go there with someone face-to-face. Of course, the thing is, now that social media and Facebook and all these things are becoming second nature, I think it's actually having the reverse effect, where as we get more and more used to saying those things easily on, online, now we're getting kind of bold enough to say the same things in person with people. It's, it's crazy. I mean, there's all kinds of new things that come along with, right? There's, there's um, um, cyberbullying. That's a thing now, right? Like in the old days, if you were the kid that got bullied, you, you would just hope you would make it through school and run home. And once you got home, you were safe. Like, I made it through another day. My lunch money, you know, was still intact or whatever happened in the old days with bullies. Now, you go home and you're not safe from that kind of thing. You can get online and someone says something nasty that just destroys your life and breaks people's hearts and it's become a real thing. 
And, and of course, it's not just like politics and those kinds of things that people get all worked up about online. And it's not just you Facebook generations, too. You've recognized that adults can get just as nasty as anybody, right, when it comes to all this stuff. But, but it's kind of a human thing, too, right? Uh, as humans, we find all kinds of ways to sort of divide into teams and, and find ways to label people and divide people and get mad at people and call names. I mean, it would take something like a, a pretty good novel series like Twilight, and now you have Team Jacob and Team Edward, right? And, and you know that some people take that pretty seriously and can get kind of nasty over it. Uh, we take like a singing competition, and now you have like Team CeeLo or Team Christina, and if I told you I was kind of a probably Team CeeLo guy, there might be some of you who are going to send me a nasty Facebook message. So I'm not going to tell you where you can find that. Team Obama, Team Romney, whatever, right? And people go after each other. Well, there's this, this thing, because this is like the world we all live in, and we may be Christians, and we come to church, but we live in that world, and even for us as Christians, that world kind of gets into our skin a little bit, and we have our own way of doing this sometimes, e even as Christians. Uh, hear me out. See if you, if you think this might be true. That sometimes, because we live in this world and it's the air we breathe too, that we have a, a, a sort of baptized version of this kind of thing, and we have team truth and team error that, that we, we take sides on. And, and, and we know as Christians we're called to defend the truth, Right? I mean, that's one of the things we're called to. Uh, Jesus said it himself, that the truth will set you free. So we as Christians know we have truth and we need to make sure that we defend it and we go out and then we discover what, what we're doing, we, we say, is just trying to free the people who are in error from their ways and give them truth. And after all, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so take that bit of truth, you moron, we say, and by the way, Jesus loves you. <laughs> do, do we do a little bit of that in, as Christians too? Do we make teams and make insults and all those kinds of things as, as Christians? I want us to think just for a few minutes this morning, church, about some things about Christianity that that are beautiful and helpful for us living in, in our culture today. I think it's instructive that the early Christians, did you know this, they found themselves in, in a pretty hostile world, actually. They lived under the Roman Empire where often they were persecuted for uh, being followers of Jesus. So it wasn't an easy life that they had. They feared persecution. They feared ridicule. They feared being uh, left out and excluded and all these kinds of things. But those earliest Christians were, were actually not known as like the defenders of the truth or, or champions of what's right. Those kind of things came later after a guy named Constantine had taken over the empire. The earliest Christians, did you know, they were actually called the followers of the way. The followers of the way. It was kind of their secret code that they would use to, to talk about themselves without using the name Jesus because sometimes using the name Jesus was so risky that it, they would use terms like followers of the way and they would go knock on secret doors and, and someone would say, who is it? And they would say, I'm a follower of the way and they would be let in. Followers of the way. 
Of course, it, it comes in part from Jesus' statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And it comes a lot from the fact that when Jesus taught uh, his disciples and the people that followed him when he taught them uh, in parables and stories and, and truths about the kingdom, he was very much teaching about the way of the kingdom of God, followers of the way. One of the places Jesus really makes this clear is in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it. You've heard about it. You've probably heard it. Maybe you've memorized part of it. It's found in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, and, and it begins, as you know, with the Beatitudes. And these are those beautiful sayings that you memorize that, that are like, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are the meek, and blessed are the peacemakers. And it goes on through the list. And then later, Jesus comes to saying something as he's teaching his disciples about the way of the kingdom of God. He says something that you've probably heard a million times. You've probably heard a lot of sermons on it. But I want us to reflect on it for a few more minutes this morning and to soak in a part of it uh, for being Christians in our 21st century world. It's found in Matthew 5, verse 38, and it goes like this. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, you must not oppose those who want to hurt you. If people slap you on your right cheek, you must turn to them the left as well. When they wish to haul you to court and take your shirt, then let them have your coat as well. When they force you to go one mile with them, go a second mile as well. Now there are probably many different situations that Jesus was envisioning as he told this not only advice but invitation and almost command to his disciples. But let's imagine one situation that surely many of those Jewish peasants would have known very well. It would have been difficult for them to swallow probably. The people Jesus is talking to were residents in a territory occupied by the empire of Rome. You know this. They were non-citizens without the rights that were afforded to full Roman citizens. There would have been occasions upon which a Roman soldier may have felt like asserting his authority and reminding these Jewish peasants who was boss, and he could have taken that moment to simply spit at them or slap them across the face. Not only would it have been a, a physically painful experience, but it would have been emotionally damaging, as these things always are. For the abuser to slap the abused one was to put them in their place, to remind them who they are. So, so imagine, what would you do? If you were in that situation and a Roman soldier came and reminded you, remember who you are, boom, you're nothing. What would you do? What could you do? What are your options? Well, here are a few options. One, you could fight back. But imagine how that would go. Uh, you versus a Roman soldier in the Roman Empire. You've seen pictures of Roman soldiers. Uh, not very well. What happens is you may feel good for that split second as you're fighting back, and then you get beaten, killed on the spot, maybe even publicly executed as an example. Not a great option. Number two, the other option, you can quietly walk away and on the surface pretend that ah, that didn't bother me or whatever, but inside being reminded one more time, I am nothing, I am inferior, they think they're better than me. 
seething out of the humiliation and, and, and the unfairness and struggling not to, you know, internalize what they are telling you about yourself. It's difficult. You know this. We know this. It's difficult for the systematically abused people not to begin over time to believe what their abusers are telling them. They're less. They're nothing. They're no good. It's hard not to believe that. So really neither of these options, right? For, for you, if you're, if you're the Jewish peasant facing the Roman guard who slapped you, neither of these options is great. But Jesus in this parable, this is why this is so memorable and we've heard it so many times, Jesus knows and he offers a third way. In fact, for his followers, he doesn't just say, here's an option. He says, this is a must if you are my follower. He says, turn the other cheek. Why? Just to suffer more abuse? Is that what Jesus is after? Is he likes Christians to be a bunch of wimps and just keep getting beat up? Sometimes we wonder if that's what it is, but that, that can't be a healthy option. What is Jesus after? I think what, what Jesus is after is something really important, and, and, and what he has in mind is that these people, think, think about it, put yourself in the shoes. If you voluntarily offer that second cheek, you have now done something very important. At first, the harassed person is the victim who was told exactly what he had to do and slapped around by the Roman soldier, and there was nothing they could do about it. But if you decide to offer your other cheek, that is now a free choice that you have made and said to the Roman soldier, actually, I am a person, and here is my second cheek. I offer to you voluntarily. In other words, this person can recover the, the sense of, of selfhood and, and dignity that was taken away by this Roman soldier. And whatever happens after that, whether the Roman soldier hits him again on the second cheek or just walks away, whatever happens, this person, you, can walk away with your chin up because you have not completely believed what this Roman soldier was trying to tell you, that you're worthless, that you're nothing, that you have no choice over what happens to you in your life. So, so it's interesting what Jesus is telling him, isn't it? Isn't that a, an interesting option? Jesus is saying you can actually maintain dignity by saying you can have my second cheek as well. You can't tell me who I am or what I have to do completely. Now, of course, one way as Christians we, we like to hear this is like, okay, aha, there is a secret way Jesus is telling us that we can win that battle. And so as we give the second cheek, we can tell that person, ha, 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 I win, actually. You tried to lord yourself over me, but I know the turning the other trick trick, and you are going to not be able to sleep tonight because you're going to feel so shameful and so guilty. So ha, 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 I actually win. It's the Christian version of like winning the battle and heaping coals of fire on someone else's head. You ever hear that growing up in like Sabbath school or whatever? Like you heard that what you can do is be nice to somebody that's mean to you and in that way you will burn their head with coals. So actually you win, right? Feels good to win. But I think there's more to it that Jesus is getting at. Imagine the situation one more time, the scenario. You're there. The Roman soldier has spit at you and slapped you across the face and said, you're nothing, you are worthless, and I can do whatever I want with you. And you have said, actually, I offer you the second cheek. There's more to the story. Because now, think about the options that that Roman soldier has. Suddenly, 
after a, a horrible situation because we recognize that those Roman soldiers are also caught in a system of a giant empire where they're just so taught exactly what to think and how to act by Caesar and their superiors. That Roman soldier sort of did what he does automatically, but now as he's given a second chance, even the Roman soldier could choose to say, now enough is enough. And that Roman soldier could walk away and at the end of that exchange, it's possible that both people who before were caught in this thing where the aggressor has no dignity and the abused person, the bullied person has no dignity, they actually, after Jesus' advice, could both walk away feeling a little bit better about the, who they are as human beings. They could both walk away with dignity. It's possible for a win-win in Jesus' story. In Jesus' way. It's amazing, I think, what Jesus has offered here. He doesn't just care about making sure that his Christian people come out on top and are winners. He's actually trying to get to a place where both people can walk away with dignity. Look what he continues to say in this well-known verse. You know it. Matthew 5 continues and Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's common sense. We all know that. But Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who bully you so that you will be acting as children of your heavenly Father who is in heaven. And who is this Father in heaven? He's the one, says Jesus, that makes the sun rise on both the evil and the good and sends rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. And that is what's driving Jesus and giving this very practical but challenging advice and command to his followers. Be like God in how you interact, even with your enemies, because God is the one that what? Takes sides and picks teams and tries to figure out who can win and lose, or God is the one who sends rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. God is the one who sends sunshine on both the evil and the good because, Jesus knows, God is the one who has created each and every one of them. What Jesus knows and what Jesus is trying to tell us is that God and God's image are implanted and stamped on the hearts of each and every person no matter what kind of stuff they have put on their outside to make teams and divisions and all this kind of stuff. So in other words, he's saying, be kind to your enemies because they too are children of God. So I get it. Uh, you come and hear a sermon about just being nicer on Facebook or something. Okay, fine. Uh, but we're, what we're not talking about though is this. Some of you can think back to the good old days where, you know, we had those Victorian values of being uh, ladies and gentlemen and proper. And then, of course, if we read those novels from those times, we know that once they were proper in public, they would go back and do all kinds of horrible things in private. Or a lot of you sort of grew up in my generation where there was the emergence of being politically correct, and it started out as a good thing where we realized our words matter, so we probably shouldn't say things that are offensive. But many of you now kind of feel that it has morphed into something that is really fake and inauthentic, and it just teaches people if you learn how to say the right things, you'll get away and not offend people, and then when you get home, you can say whatever you want and 
slander people there behind their back. It's not what Jesus is after, it's just sort of general politeness and that kind of thing. There's something more to it. Jesus' invitation is to something much bigger and much better for his followers who are called to be these radical followers of the way. It's this invitation to genuine kindness and real humility and gentleness and forgiveness in our speech and in our interactions. And all of that, it's because it's rooted in this one profound and simple truth. Each person, every human being that you encounter is, has value and worth and dignity because they are, like you, a child of God. A child of their creator. They're loved by God because they are, are precious to their heavenly father. It's the basic truth of the gospel that we are called to witness to as Christians, to tell people about Every person in the world is precious to God, so precious that God will stop at nothing to come and redeem them and bring them to himself, even giving his son, Jesus. It's a beautiful truth, and it sounds a little bit something like this. You may remember 1999. It was a long time ago, I know. Um, There was a movie called Notting Hill. Anyone see, see the movie? Nobody in here has seen the movie Notting Hill. Do we need to have like a church-wide, uh, like, okay, Pastor Darren has seen Notting Hill. Come on. I, I will tell you that this is one of those chick flicks that actually crosses the line to where a lot of, it, it's, it's a bromantic comedy <laughs> where guys can actually admit that that's a decent movie. It's okay. All right. So if you haven't seen it, you got to see it. But quick synopsis is Julia Roberts, Hugh Grant, and romance. That's kind of the story, right? But Hugh Grant is like the average guy who owns a bookshop in a neighborhood in London called Notting Hill. Julia Roberts is the famous, gorgeous, successful actress from Hollywood, USA. And of course, strangely enough, beyond all expectations, they meet and Julia Roberts' character, the famous actress, actually falls for this humble bookstore salesman and Hugh Grant, and they fall in love and things are going well, and I know this is hard to believe in a romantic comedy, something bad happens about two-thirds of the way through. And, and what happens is that he overhears her on a movie set talking kind of like dismissively about him, like, oh yeah, like she's basically embarrassed of him, and it cuts deep for this simple guy, and he's like, you know what, I can't do it. So he breaks it off with her towards the end of the movie. She discovers that really she's actually in love with him and she can't live without him. And so she comes to find him at his little bookstore and here, and and he's actually resistant. He's been hurt a lot of times by her and he's like, I can't do this anymore. And here's where the line comes. And I have seen lists on the internet where this is both in the top 25 most romantic quotes of movies. It's also in lists of the top 10 worst movie quotes ever. So have it as you will. You decide. You got to see the movie though before you decide. But here's how the quote goes. They're meeting. She's saying, you know, come back to me. I need you. And Hugh Grant says, I don't know. I live in Notting Hill. You live in Beverly Hills. Everyone in the world knows who you are. My mother has trouble remembering my name. (laughs) And then Julia Roberts says to him, yeah, but don't forget. And if you need a tissue, just grab one right now. Don't forget, I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy, asking him to love me. Yeah. 
I told you. You ain't gonna go. 1999, Notting Hill. Julia Roberts, Hugh Grant. You can get it on Netflix. Probably, yeah. But there's something there beyond the sappy romance, isn't there? Listen carefully. It's this beautiful kernel of gospel truth. Good news, life-giving truth buried just beneath the surface of a Hollywood romantic comedy. For every person that we meet, for every person we encounter, for every person that we interact with, whether face-to-face or through the flickering pixels of social media, for every person, we need that reminder. Don't forget, beyond that stuff you see on the surface, that person is also simply a human being created in the image of God, and that gives them infinite worth. It gives them dignity and value as a person. God came to this world as an infant called Emmanuel because God wanted to be with that person. And that is immeasurably good news, church. That is gospel that we are called to witness to in this world. As followers of the way, we can do that. We can witness to that good news by the way in which we interact and respond to those around us, friends and enemies alike. So when you look at, in the mirror this week, when you look in the mirror this week, may you see exactly what God sees, a beautiful person created in the Creator's image. A beautiful child of God. And when you look around you this week and across the classroom and across the cafeteria or the gymnasium, around the office, and through those tubes on the internet, may you see what God sees. A beautiful, beloved child of the Creator, a person made in the image of God. And may you, church, as followers of the way, followers of Jesus, love them just as Christ has loved you.